panel four is called Working the Night Shift. Um, and uh, we're taking a bold dive into the world of music now, uh, which is very exciting, I think. Uh, I want to introduce Michael Poulton. Uh, he's an undergraduate student at the Queensland Conservatorium of Music, um, where he's studying violin and uh, with uh, Ms. Michelle Walsh. Both have been participants in the Australian Youth Orchestra programs and recently returned from Canada, where they completed a summer program with the Taffel Music Baroque Orchestra. Is that even close to right? Taffel. Oh, thank you. Um, so, so I think uh, this, this has, again, an opportunity to take us into new, interesting places that we haven't been before. So uh, please welcome this panel. Thank you, everyone. Uh, my name's Michael Poulton, and um, we've had a bit of a brief introduction already, but um, I'm joined with my twin brother, so you're not seeing double, um, Philip, and we are undergraduate students at the Queensland Con in Brisbane. Um, for us, the night shift concept, which we're going to talk about today, um, has intrigued us for many years, and we're very, very excited to be able to share this idea with you. Um, we're also honoured to be joined by Rowan Brandt, who is co-manager of the rock band Boy and Bear. Um, he brings a wealth of knowledge about popular music and um, I'm particularly interested in his contribution in terms of the intersection between popular music and classical music and really how different are the musical genres. And finally, we're also joined by Michael Solis, who is Canberra-based. He's an artistic director and composer. Um, he chairs the Australian Youth Music Council and um, he really complements this panel because of his experience with engaging young audiences with Music of Eva. Um, I've just got a few extra notes here. I'm just going to be bold and begin by saying that I believe that the night shift is a solution that will help the classical music and their woes with youth attendance. And, and that's quite a big statement. And um, I hope that I was very excited when Sandra from the second panel was talking about this social experience in performance. And I hope that by the end of this, um, this presentation, you'll see that is exactly what the night shift is all about. It's about the social aspect of performance. Um, I should probably give a little rundown on how our discussion is going to work. We have decided to focus on four key areas um, pertaining to the night shift concept. That's not to say that there are heaps of other points that are worthy of discussion, but we have chosen four key issues that we believe will help to progress this idea from its initial stages. Um, and that, in that way, I extend an invitation for you to please contribute your feedback on the night shift idea. Um, just put your hand up or you can wait till the end of the presentation. So, to begin, I'd like to begin by asking the question, why aren't young people attending classical music concerts? And for me, as a young, aspiring musician, this question is particularly pertinent because, A, I'd like to have a job when I graduate, and secondly, um, I get to experience the joys of classical music on a daily basis, and so it's quite frustrating for me as a performer to think that audiences don't share that experience with me. So I can't answer this question by myself, and I rely on the research by Melissa Dobson and Benita Kolb, um, and a lot of their research deals with what they call culturally aware non-attenders in the UK. And they have um, identified a couple of factors which contributes to this intimidation of classical music. The principal factor for this perceived sense of intimidation 
um, by young audiences was a question of knowledge. Young concert attendees held the belief that in order to truly understand and enjoy live classical performance, it is necessary to possess some form of special knowledge. Research participants were also perplexed as to why concert proceedings were kept so under wraps and so secretive. This was um, encouraged by a lack of communication between the musicians, the conductors and the audience. Young listeners were confused as to why no one greeted them at the beginning of the concert, introduced and explained the music that they were going to listen to, or indicate the start and finish of the pieces. If you have a look at the screen, the image that we've created uh, is trying to suggest the feeling that performers are inhabiting a different world to the audience. And this contributes to a feeling of alienation from the audience. And finally, the intimidation factor of classical concerts was increased by the ritualised and restrictive behaviour codes. There existed much ambiguity and um, anxiety amongst young listeners as to how to show the correct form of appreciation, when to clap, um, and what is the correct way to show concert etiquette. Now I want to I encourage you to keep these intimidation factors in mind because I'm going to invite Phil who's going to introduce the night shift concept and we're going to follow that with a quick analysis of Dobson's research into the effectiveness of the night shift in addressing these barriers of participation. Hello, uh, Philip speaking. Um, I'm just going to give a very quick rundown of what the night shift is because I think it's important for us to understand what the whole concept is about. And it's run by um, a UK-based period ensemble called Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment. And what they've done is they're trying to present classical music in a way um, that is um, free from the formalities of the concert hall and also that allows audience members to really engage with the performers. And they're trying to attract an audience base that A, rarely comes to a classical music concert unless they're made to, or B, have never attended in their lifetime. So it's presented in, um, at the moment, about three different venues. They're very trendy. Um, there's Queen Elizabeth Hall on Southbank Centre. Um, there's the Roundhouse. And they've also just completed a very um, bold um, concert program where they performed a classical music concert in a pub, the Star of the Kings. Um, and what it is, it's an hour-long concert program that starts at around 9 o'clock at night, so it's quite late. It's aimed at those who can go home, relax, and then come back and um, enjoy a concert. And what they have, they have pre- and post-concert um, entertainment. So normally the pre-concert entertainment is through a jazz ensemble or a um, folk band or maybe some bluegrass. And then it finishes at about 11 o'clock with either a DJ playing house music, modern music. And I'm really interested, and we can chat to Rowan about this later, about how they are infusing, you know, they're pretty much infusing three different musical styles into the one concert. Um, it's very important to note that the orchestra allows the members to walk around during the performance, and they're also allowed to bring a drink in as well, and that's all in moderation, of course. But um, they are allowed to talk during the performance. Um, it's not excessive talking, but it is um, allowed. Um, and also, they, um, a lot of the venues don't have conventional seating. There's bean bags, there's um, other seating arrangements. One really important thing to note is the ticket pricing. It's about £10 um, for a pre-purchase ticket for an adult, so that's about $15. And for a student, uh, I'm a university student, it's only £4, which is about $6.50. And more importantly, they get a free pint of beer on the entry. So that gets them in. Mm, that's important 
for every university student. <laughs> um, booking is through online uh, media, and what Orchestra Relayed for Enlightenment have come up with is a fantastic concept of booking tickets through text messaging. And it's worked very well for them, and that's just another option for students to use. And finally, um, the concept always ends with a Q&A session hosted by a very um, young and engaging um, presenter who asks questions of the musicians and of also the audience members. And the questions don't necessarily have to be about the music. They can be about the personal lives of the musicians, their careers. Um, so it's really breaking down that barrier. I'll just really quickly give um, some statistics which I found fascinating. Um, they've had over 5,000 tickets sold to this venue in the past three years. Um, and their peak performance at the Roundhouse um, in January last year had 1,200 attend, which is quite impressive. And what's even more impressive is a great percentage rate, um, which was research done in 2009, um, which found that 80% of their audience was aged under 35 which I think is fantastic. Um, it's, uh, particularly when we look at the ABS data from 2006, which looked at classical music attendance, those aged between um, 25 to 35, um, only 7% attended classical music concerts, but the night shift is getting 80% under age 35, which is quite impressive. We do have a very quick three-minute video presentation to show you, and it actually is really great because you can hear the, um, the audience feedback as they're leaving the concert, so we'll have a look at that. The OE are very special in the way that they... Um, they give so much energy to every phrase, every impulse. There's always contact, you know, between the double bass, the second clarinet, the flutes. Every, everyone is living the music. They want to tell the story. Um, and there's such a, an eager sense of wanting to, to be involved in the notes. And I love that. I love that. They're really special orchestra. I really love how jovial it is and how relaxed it is. And yet, once again, um, I, I like the fact that it's you know it's quite late, and so it means that you know you can finish work, chill out a bit, and then come. I mean, live, I think it's just something yeah special in itself, I think, because you just feel completely surrounded by the music in a way you can't when it's a recording. I don't necessarily have the concentration span for a long concert, so I quite enjoy the short snappy interludes and the, uh, the, the breaking up of the movements with the speaking and learning about the different uh, musicians and the conductor and the comedy behind it. <laughs> I'll just say the conductor, like, just wonderfully eccentric, it's brilliant. Like, you just never know that otherwise. You know they're all nuts, but, like, you would never see their nuts until they get an interview like that. They've done a really good job of nurturing this relaxed atmosphere. The little anecdotes in between are just perfect. I've never really sat through a whole 
symphony or in, enjoy the performance like I enjoyed it tonight. Uh, I'd say come along, see how it goes, and uh, you might find that you learn something. All of the musicians were just loving it, and it just really comes across. Thing. The atmosphere is very cool and the location is great and of course the prize is amazing. I got to hear a great orchestra in the raw um, for absolute peanuts. You know, and now I'm, I'm sitting here drinking wine with my friends, listening to great some great tunes. I mean, what's not to like? So we'll just really quickly talk about Melissa Dobson, who um, did um, a research paper on the night shift concept in 2010. And Michael spoke about it before, but she talked about the concept of this, um, this, this perceived lack of knowledge that um, young and new concert goers ex um, um, experience um, when they go to a concert. And she also identified that a lot of these young audience members felt like they couldn't understand the modes of performance. They had difficulty in understanding the behaviours of other audience members around them, the worth of the performance, and also how could they express their own opinions and views about the music that they just heard. Um, a lot of participants felt that the general conformity of the audience, um, of, of their agreement um, and worth, um, didn't really connect with what they were experiencing. So just the person next to them was saying, oh, well, this is wonderful, and oh, you know, we were so engaged with that. And these concert goers were saying, well, no, I wasn't engaged with that performance. And it actually made their um, personal responses, it didn't seem valid to them because you know, they felt as though they didn't have the knowledge that the experienced concert goer next to them had. So how could their um, responses be um, valid? So that's what Melissa um, Dobson um, found in her research. She also found that um, this concept, the use of embedded information um, in the night shift concept. Um, a lot of classical music concerts have these large 20-page booklets um, with concert program notes and just a lot of the participants um, identified that they couldn't understand the information that was given to them. A lot of the information required prior knowledge of classical music. So what the Night Shift does is they all they do is give you a, an, an, a, an A4 sheet of paper, which is the concert running order. And it's up to the presenter and the musicians themselves to talk about the music. And this is embedded information, and it works quite well. Um, Dobson found that um, participants really strongly connected with this ideal. One of the concerts, Robert Levin, who is a um, uh, piano player. He was playing um, a Mozart piano concerto with the orchestra and he took time to talk to the audience members about the piece that he was going to play and he identified a motive in the work and he said to them please look out for this string performance. But what he did, and this links with Rowan about engaging other styles, he played it in popular music style, so how maybe Lady Gaga would play it, or he played it in a jazz style. And the audience members really, really um, identified with this, and what they found is that they were actively listening for um, that motive. So that's the use of embedded information and something that Dobson found um, quite useful. I'm just aware that we're doing a lot of talking, so I'm going to um, 
pass it on to Rowan and just talk about this intersection of the musical genres and your comment about the night shift concept and what you think you can add. Yeah, definitely. I think um, something that's been it's really apparent from what the guys here have been discussing is that night shift as a concept relies upon, um, I guess, existing cultural conventions and behaviours that people learn through attendance through other musical genres. So, for example, people attending a Boy and Bear concert, um, there's there are codified and uh, social rules to attending an event like that, um, just as there are for other art forms. And what we see here is, a, I guess, the strength in the, in the concept of, of the night shift is that there's a cross-pollination there um, and that people can go um, with the with the cultural and social knowledge that they have uh, experienced from popular forms and be able to engage with new art forms in that way. Um, I think I think what you know, you're talking about the intimidation factors and starting to it's not I don't think it's just a case of pulling out those barriers as if you know classical music is so hard to access I think it's actually about just finding other routes um, because by the same token you could argue that contemporary popular music has its own social barriers and its own rules about subcultural capital or, or social capital um, in order to access those particular events so I, I think it's not a case of um, lowering an art form or or you know bringing it down to something that's more consumable. I actually think it's um, about navigating more creative routes to helping audiences to be able to, you know, to find out the stories behind the music, to, uh, I guess, find other, other avenues of knowledge which they already possess to be able to access the art form. I completely agree with that too, because when we canvass the idea to even our, our colleagues at uni, um, a lot of the the musicians were like, well, yes, it, it's you know devaluing the music and it's making it cheap. And a lot of the musicians themselves expressed um, difficulty in understanding what the real philosophy behind it was. I think that's important to remember. When I think of the night shift, it's not really about replacing the current concert hall. I think we need that, and that's catering to another audience. But at this stage, the night shift for me is a bridging concept. So just giving access to a young audience that isn't willing to, um, or doesn't feel, it's not that, that, that they're not willing to give it a go, but just a, an avenue that they can follow to try it. I think even, um, you know, locations that audiences are more familiar with, or this particular kind of younger audience, so, you know, being able to, I know where the metro is, I know how to get there, mm. I know where to buy tickets from, and I know how to find out more information about those particular events. Like, they're, they're channels that already exist, and it's basically you know, going out and meeting the audience at those, or the, a, a newer audience almost, in those spaces, um, as opposed to you know, having to jump through all the different hoops or change the audience having to change all of their behaviours in order to uh, engage with the art form. I think that's um, really exciting about it. I think there's tremendous potential for it. Um, you know, imagine seeing... Um, Brisbane Baroque on a tour uh, at the Annandale Hotel. I mean, uh, that's pretty revolutionary. And, and, and I think you, the, the opportunity for people to go, like, not, and, and not just a novelty thing, I think it's actually about saying, um, you know, our art forms can exist out of, out of the traditional spaces that they're in, and they take on new meanings in that way as well. Yeah. Michael, did you want to comment? Um, well, yes, I mean, from... Um my experience is I manage um, the Music of Eva concerts in, in Canberra and we've had um, incredible success over the last uh, six or so years in terms of generating young audiences, although in a different, um, younger audiences than this, we're talking about school-aged children. 
um, to the point now where uh, last year we averaged uh, 60 uh, school, uh, primary and high school students attending each concert. Um, and um, the amount of um, our single ticket sales of, of people under 30 for various concerts across the year were more than 50% of the entire uh, ticket sold. Um, and there's been a lot of learnings that, um, well, that I've, I've learnt through that, and a lot of those I think reflect some of the things that, that you um, discussed with the night shift. Um, price point's incredibly important, obviously, and um, what was discussed earlier, not just the price point for the individuals, but the price point for the, for the families, and of course, often um, you know, the families are the, are the decision makers as to whether, you know, whether they're going to have access to live music. Um, Ease of ticketing, which seems a really um, obvious one, but I mean, Canberra, for instance, um, <coughs> I mean, there are some arts companies will have, um, um, you can purchase youth tickets if you organise a, a, a group of 10 and then call a ticketed agency and go through these protocols to book it, which is, an, you know, which is relying on someone to do a lot of work in, in, in collating that information and then, and then doing that. And it's incredibly difficult. It's another obstacle, another barrier to access. Um, you know, for young people to, to come at an affordable rate. Um, so what worked really well for Music of Eva is we got our local um, um, music organisations, so there's a group called Canberra Youth Music and the Young Music Society, who um, their members could purchase tickets directly through them. Um, and that made it really accessible, it was already an avenue, and it was already a community that they already felt comfortable yeah. with. So I think that idea of comfort um, yeah, is also really, really, really important. Yeah. I think on that, the idea of um, building a community and building a tribe and in contemporary popular music, um, the notion of fandom and building together a unified, um, homogenous people bound together by a common love for a particular artist or art form is really powerful and that um, in a space creating a social environment, which Sandra talked about earlier, this is this underpins this idea and, and the idea of helping people to engage and giving them spaces to chat and enjoy a pint or you know have a bit of a dance afterwards I, I don't the, the cross-pollination of the art forms is is irrelevant it's about building this tribe um, accessing these communities binding them together um, the idea of direct ticket sales and, and kind of being able to go directly to an audience um, has implications on the commercial elements of what you're doing as well so it's not just it's not just about building the audience together, but it actually becomes something that is financially um, really rewarding. Um, that's, that's happened, that, this is a bit of a revolution taking place in contemporary popular music and you know, brands taking hold of their audience and going straight to them and cutting out middlemen. And I mean, it, it gets a little bit political, I'm sure, but um, I think the idea of developing this tribe, this tribe of young people who can see people repeatedly at concerts and, and be joined and connected together by a common love is um, really exciting. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's. Sorry, can you sorry. Say your name oh, sorry thank sorry. you. So this is Michael speaking. Um, just just to add to that, I think the word comfort is a really good word to use in terms of setting up um, environments where young people uh, are comfortable to go to. Because I mean, a lot of a lot has been talked about um, the the social importance of a concert event, which of course is hugely important. But um, I mean, we've done a lot of work. Uh, for instance, we're doing audience development amongst um, university students, so amongst um, law students and med medical students in particular with, with Music of Eva in Canberra. And and the primary reason they're still going to attend concerts, although the social element's really important, the primary reason they want to go to those concerts is because of the high quality of the music and and the artistry. And I think that's often um, is is forgotten about. So. I mean, the, the primary reason is, is still, you know, the, the quality of the art, but it has to be in a, in a, um, 
in a medium that they feel comfortable with. And obviously through having that peer support and that tribe um, atmosphere is, you know, is how that um, is fostered and, and develops. And in terms of feeling comfort as well, I'm just um, thinking about some of the research that I conducted earlier this year and it found that um, performers had this desire to negotiate social relationships with performers. And I know this has been touched on in some of the other panels as well, how they wanted to get to know the performer's individual personality and their career paths as well. Um, and that's interesting when you talk about you know, that fan and we were having a conversation earlier about whether, you know, is it also possible that we can turn classical music lovers into fans and not just culture consumers? Why does it have to be that just popular and rock worlds have these fan bases? Why can't, you know, there be girls screaming out for I, Richard Tognetti or something? You know? Can I just raise you with that? I, 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 think, I think one of the issues um, is that that, that does actually already exist. There already is that kind of mentality. I mean, and I, I think it's it's up to you know major performing arts companies and presenters to, to make use of that. I mean, the example was um, we had Sabina Meyer performing Canberra um, last week, and we would have had at least you know um, a dozen you know clarinet players, um, not just from Canberra but from um, as far away as Griffith and, and Broken Hill, who came to the concert because you know this was their idol, and they you know wanted to make sure will I be able to get thirty seconds to talk to her and get yeah. her to sign my you know, my, my book and so forth. So, I mean, I think, it, I mean, obviously it's not, it doesn't exist to the same degree as, you know, in rock music, but, but it, it does exist and it's about um, how um, promoters and performers can make use of it. That. That's my question as well, sorry. Mm -hmm. sorry. Um, about what strategies then can classical music ensembles implement to encourage this type of fostering if relationship? Add to it, um, for a lot of speaking. Just on the concept of building the relationship and building the fan base, if I can relate back to Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, they used the concept called speed dating with the musicians. <laughs> and that's exactly how what they're doing is they're creating their fan bases and the musicians come down to the um, concerts afterwards and will share drinks. And I know ACO is doing it at the moment as well, um, mostly to their subscriber base. Um, but yeah, the opportunity to share a drink with the musician and talk to them on a human level rather than an alien level as yeah. we explored earlier. It's building those contact zones yeah. um, and the opportunity for meet and greets like it's mm. done in the rock world, for example, um, be it within uh, fandom or be it in a broader context. I mean, to draw in another, I guess, another art form, um, in New York there's a current theatre production called Sleep No More and it's an interactive experience and then I think once a month or so they do, they have a premium priced um, event where you can meet the artists and meet the actors behind it and basically they take you off into different rooms in the complex and you get to sit one on one with these, these actors and some of them you know, might stay in character and you're interviewing a character but others um, you can get an insight into what happens behind the facade or behind what you see on the stage. So I think there's tremendous potential um, and popularity and the idea of you know connecting with, with someone, a, a respected musician or someone that someone admires or is a fan of um, strengthens and develops that um, in an enormous way. I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of potential for, for viral marketing in that sense and, and, and having... Um, you know, young young people act particularly that, that maybe work in the art sector to work as ambassadors. Um, in in that sense, I did a um, a straw poll. I, I teach um, first year um, composition at the at the School of Music in Canberra, and I, I did a straw poll at the end of this year just to see how many live concerts um, all the students had gone to. And of course, you know, I mean, some of them were zero. Um, uh, some of them, you know, were four or five. None kind of went above that. Um, 
some of them had never seen a, a performance of classical music before live, despite the fact that they were studying classical composition at a tertiary music institution. Um, so I, I think, and, and I, I don't think that's unusual. <laughs> um, so I, I think, um, you know, trying to promote um, people like those individuals to, to have more access to concerts so they can become, um, you know, ambassadors in a sense and, and then, you know, create an environment that's, that's going to attract other young people and get them to, to, to you know, to, to raise awareness. And I think, um, I, I mean, I guess in terms of what the art sector can do, I think um, as, as, you know, attending as many concerts, you know, our, ourselves and, and encouraging students to come to concerts, and that's something that we're very, you know, aware of doing at Music of Eva in Canberra, but also, um, you know, another activity that I do. Yeah, just Philip speaking, uh, just with um, um, on Michael's point about concert attendance, I did some research earlier in the year um, on adolescents and their concert attendance, and I only found about 28% had attended a, a classical music concert in their, in their entire lifetime. And this was um, undertaken, this research, in a rural setting, and it just got me just thinking um, just then about uh, this concept, the night shift concept, how, um, and I can, we can open up to the floor maybe, um, would this be a good um, medium for a regional setting? Because a regional setting might not have a concert hall, might not have a wonderfully um, exquisite place to play in, but they might have a pub, <laughs> they might have um, an abandoned building. Um, the Roundhouse, for example, in the UK was an abandoned building for a long time and it became an art space. So it's something to think about. Yep. Just going to open up questions on the floor now and any comments? Um, my name's Dana. I was just wondering, at what stage um, do you think, or if at all, it would be relevant to take these people who, you know, might engage with an orchestra at the night shift level into a more traditional setting? Um, would you need to augment sort of what you do surrounding concerts to be able to meet their expectations? Will yeah. they ever be able to sit in a concert hall yeah. and engage in yeah. tr the traditional manner? This is not my idea, but it's um, the night shift idea. Um, we take their, the lead by their example. Um, and I feel you are quite familiar with this progression. So they've started with at the grassroots level of trying to get youth participation. And now they're constructing particular different concerts to then eventually lead them into the concert hall. And you can explain a little yeah. bit more about that. Uh, Philip speaking, if you think of it in a ladder, what night shift have done, um, they've started with the night shift concert and now um, they've actually identified um, people coming out of this concert wanting to expand and they've created a concept called The Works, which um, still is quite um, relaxed, but it's a, the concert timing goes up to two hours and um, there's also a lot more in-depth um, analysis of the works given as well. So it's like a ladder, they're, they're building them up. So let's... Uh, Lenine Burke, I just have two questions, anyone can answer them. The first one is people keep referring to sort of being allowed to talk, being allowed to take a drink in, uh, this series of protocols in classical music. I'm interested in like 
where does anybody learn that there are those protocols? And also it sounds like a lot of people are terrified that there are protocols they mm. don't understand. So who's like the big classical music boss saying act this way? That's my first question. <laughs> and my second question is what training do you actually need to provide to the musicians or is the night shift done or your other programs around supporting musicians to translate their ability to perform in concert halls and uh, have delicious food probably provided for them on their little break and or end up in a regional pub. Um, yeah, um, just I'm really glad you asked that first question because I, I think um, uh, one of the, I mean, the things that was discussed earlier is um, that Michael spoke in his keynote address is about um, the idea, you know, uh, that, that an audience is, is passive. Um, and I think that's, I mean, obviously audiences aren't passive and there are a whole bunch of rules and conventions that, you know, any um, that audiences follows and, and that does necessitate a, an engagement, you know, that is an active engagement because there are certain protocols that need to be followed. Um, I think um, that in terms of where audiences learn that, I, I think the problem is, is that we actually don't teach, uh, um, we don't teach young audiences how to be an you know how to be an audience in various contexts and I mean this you know this occurred to me um, just uh, this is an anecdotal kind of story is um, I, I teach um, a classroom of kin kindergarten students every week and um, there was a, there was a kind of a big big concert you know, just a Christmas concert on and, and I just made a decision that this term I'm just going to teach them how to be an audience so you know every time there was a performance we just made sure there was kind of a huge applause and they didn't speak during everything else. And of course, when the Christmas concert came about, which is normally all kind of the parents just, you know, like a polite kind of clap, you know, watching the time, you know, this is two hours, let's get on. Um, they transformed the whole environment of the whole concert because they were so excited about getting this opportunity to clap after every two minutes that they were just like sitting on their chairs doing this. And when it finished, they were like, yeah! And there's little, you know, like 10 kindergarten kids. And of course, then everyone else joined in. And, you know, but, but that only happened because there was some there was some kind of training and this is how you're an audience. And I think that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, classical music can be seen as inaccessible because we don't train, an we, may, we may train them how to listen and that still may not happen, but we never train them how to actually be an audience. And I think that's, that's important. Philip speaking, if I could quickly add, because um, I agree with what Michael said, but um, for those audience members who may not be studying music or um, some sort of arts degree, I think and Melissa Dobson identified it, it's the intimidation. If you think of intimidation as the classical music boss, it's the times when they've maybe clapped between a movement and someone's shushed them or death stared them. That's the classical yeah. music god, I think, mm -hmm. in that situation. And the Rowan speaking, I think that's not an isolated yeah, it's not isolated. If I put my parents in a, a hip hop concert, they need to learn how to move, how to, how to, you know, like it's the same thing. It's the I, I think there's maybe a case of saying the audience um, is is the boss in a way. Yeah. The, the collective, the collective audience uh, dictates what is appropriate or what isn't. Yeah, I know that we're almost out of time. Just one more, just Andy. Just hi, hi, uh, Brad Wilson again. Um, just. Um, Who's asking my question? Uh, we'll just go with Andy first. Yep. Uh, Andy Arthur's from the Deep Blue Orchestra. We've, we've. Uh, I think what you're saying is fantastic. Um, we've been touring now for a few years, uh, done hundreds of concerts around Australia with this approach, and and uh, in fact Sophie here is from the orchestra, and um, 
we've, we've adopted these approaches and more, and, and Sophie can tell you she spends a lot of time at the end of a show signing autographs <coughs> and talking to kids for ages, don't you? Um, what I'm interested in is this, there's a kind of, there's a sort of subtext that's, that, that slightly confuses me here. Um, we're talking about orchestras and we're talking about classical music. Um, do they have to be linked? Uh, is this a sort of thing to keep classical music going or is it a thing to keep orchestras going? Because uh, could not orchestras not just modernize their approach to performance but actually modernize what they do, what they play, you know, because there's great quality music. Radiohead is great and it can be orchestrated just as well as, as Tchaikovsky. So I'm, I'm just interested to know, are you sort of evangelical about the classical bit mm. or the orchestral bit? Mm. Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> a tough one. one. <laughs> but um, for me personally, it's, it's the, um, the repertoire, the music itself. But um, I'm just aware that we do have to finish. So any other questions that anyone has? It is lunchtime um, coming up. So I'm um, please come. And okay, one more, one more at the back. At the back. Hi, I'm just Brad Wilson. Um, I'm just interested in the um, pricing concept and um, the fact that you might be charging six um, pounds or fifteen pounds for a, a fairly premium style offering, yeah. and what that means with people making the step up mm. to the next level. Um, mm. So just um, the pricing would concern me. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a valid point and um, something that I think would need to be considered in terms of the long term um, of that. But yes, we do have to finish. I'm sorry. But um, please come up and talk to any of us about the night shift and your further questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the panel.